Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I've been avoiding doing something about the coronavirus crisis, but a couple of listeners, who are also donors and help me keep the podcast going, told me I had to deal with it. And you can become a donor at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, or the FRDH SoundCloud page. Anyway, the reason I was reluctant to talk about the pandemic is simple. There's both too much reporting about it and too little information. I didn't want to add to the pile. This is normal in any catastrophe. Journalism really is a first rough draft of history. After a catastrophe, death tolls change. Facts are on earth that create a more distinctive picture of the chain of causality that led to the event. Second, third, tenth drafts of history need to be written to provide an accurate summary of the who, what, where, when, why, and how. On September 11, 2001, by chance, I was guest hosting an NPR-distributed program called The Connection. The show went out every morning between 12 and noon, live from Boston. Within five minutes of the first plane hitting the Twin Towers, producers were on the phone booking guests. Luckily, the Boston area, with all its universities, doesn't lack for security and intelligence service experts. A rotation of these people were brought into the studio as the morning unfolded. We put a television on and watched and talked, knowledgeably but without any substantial information about what was going on. I described for those listening the collapse of the second tower, All the while, the production team was bringing in new wire service reports, which I tried to summarize for listeners. Virtually none of those reports held up. Fighter jets escorting planes to the ground. Never happened. The U.S. Capitol building had been hit. Never happened. These were reports from reliable wire services, Reuters and AP. I tried to periodically remind people that the story would change, particularly estimates of the death toll, but... In the moment, I reported as fact things that weren't, and I think many in the audience, panicked by the event, were inclined to believe the worst. We spent the rest of the week trying to correct our mistakes. In journalism, when reporting an actual event, as deadline approaches, you go with what you know, and hopefully have space or time to make clear to your reader or audience that this is a report where the facts may change as more information becomes clear. I was reminded of 9-11 as the coronavirus death toll in America climbed past 3,000 this week. Approximately 3,000 people died at the World Trade Center. But they died in a single incident that unfolded in less than two hours. Most people in the country watched as it happened and felt a connection to the event. The pandemic is different. It's unfolding slowly. No building is being destroyed by a flying bomb. It's happening all around you, but unless you know someone who has the virus and is in ICU or who has died, it feels strange. You're being restricted from normal life, but feel healthy. You watch or read the news, but the facts change every day. The result is anxiety rather than fear. If you are like me, you also spend a lot of time on social media, reacting to half-truths and facts reported without context, and straight-up rumors. Rumor is everything in the days after a major event that rips apart the normal flow of life. 
1993, the IRA blew up a fish and chip shop on the very Protestant Shankill Road in Belfast one Saturday at lunchtime. Nine people were killed, mostly women and children. The bomber died as well. His device detonated too early before he could plant it in a room above the chippy where the intended target, a Protestant paramilitary group, was meant to be meeting later in the afternoon. Not that that mattered to the dead. I watched a mob stream out of a public wake for some of the Protestant dead. The men were red-faced with rage. What's going on? They've hijacked the hearse. Who? The IRA. Men jumped in their cars, headed out towards where the incident had supposedly taken place. Totally useless trip. No such thing had happened. But rumor has the power of fact in the aftermath of tragedy. Rumor has, over the last decade, found a place in journalism. Social media platforms are increasingly a primary source of news for people. When I started out on Twitter, most of the accounts I followed were from the Middle East, Iraq in particular. It was the only way I had to keep on top of a story that had affected me personally and a region I hoped to return to. I added in Beltway reporters after I spent the summer of 2009 in D.C. making a documentary on the passage of the Affordable Care Act. When I got back to London, I found it was like being in a Senate office building, hanging outside a caucus room with other hacks, waiting for legislators to come out so we could ask questions that would be of no importance the next day. The banter, trading of claims that need to be tracked down and verified, was replicated on Twitter almost felt like I was back in D.C., one of the gang. That's the fun part of social media. What Twitter and other social media platforms have done is make deadlines shorter. The business model for most news outlets now, keeping eyeballs on the website, traffic, clicks up so that advertisers will pay your rates, means that the traditional verification processes have gone out the window. Every minute of the day, You learn something new, and getting new stuff on the website is the paramount thing, so every minute is a deadline. Confusion reigns. Still, you go with what you know. A new data set from researchers at Oxford University says the coronavirus isn't going to be that damaging. Run with it. Only later do you find out the data was distributed to newspapers by a PR firm with ties to the Ministry of Defense and other outlets connected to the Conservative Party. Data as propaganda weapon. And now we have the Twitter president, who's also a serial liar, trying to lead in the worst global health crisis in a century. The technology and the historical accident of Trump has deeply corrupted journalism. White House staffers who speak on the condition of anonymity have become the sine qua non of D.C. reporting. Their words feed the prejudices of those for or against Trump. One of my favorite moments in the Watergate film, All the President's Men, is when Jason Robards, playing Washington Post editor Ben Bradley, explodes at Woodward, Bernstein, and their story editor. God damn it, when is somebody going to go on the record in this story? I think of it every time I read an anonymous quote from the White House about how inept the president is. God damn it, when will somebody in the Trump White House go on the record? Now that we are in the middle of a real crisis is not the time for anonymous. The president is on the record, on Twitter, 
all the time. And that's about it. The problem is, much of what he says is demonstrably untrue, and his story changes constantly. On the 24th of March, he said Americans would be able to go to church by Easter. Exactly one week later, he said 100,000 to 240,000 people would die. The turnaround was whiplash-inducing, as are the numbers he claimed might die. What does that numerical spread mean? One fact we know is how few people have been tested, and if you don't have sufficient data, your claims will get wild. It's the equivalent of those initial death estimates from the Twin Towers on September 11th. Ultimately, they were revised downward. Here in Britain, there have been similar wild projections. The Financial Times reported, as many as one in eight Londoners have been infected, or as few as one in 33. As a Londoner, I'm going to tell you, these numbers are useless to me. All of this is to say... Don't be led by numbers, especially the big extrapolations. They are anxiety-inducing. Treat them with old-school journalistic skepticism. Also, if you see a data set claiming something that goes against the run of reporting, find out its source. If the government goes on the record, as the British government did this week, and says only 2,000 out of 5,000 frontline National Health Service workers have been tested for coronavirus, that's a fact. That's news you can use. It's really important to maintain skepticism. What happens when incomplete data is reported as hard-cold fact or without a contextualizing paragraph at the top of a story emphasizing what the data set is missing? Well, something like this. The initial reports coming from China and later Italy said the virus was fatal to the elderly, people over 70, but younger people didn't really get it. In the White House and at 10 Downing Street, the young, brave, Ayn Rand-reading top advisors told their bosses, it's a natural process. Let the virus run through the herd, cull the infirm elderly. Their extremely well-paid propaganda merchants and right-wing media amplified this. Only the old folks die. Spring break arrives in the U.S. The beaches of Florida are packed with kids, Mardi Gras celebrations in New Orleans take place, and people in their 20s, 30s, 40s congregate to party all over as if their age grants them immunity. And now, as the death toll rises in Florida and Louisiana, it becomes clear that it isn't just 80-year-olds who are dying. All ages are dying. Of all the real numbers, as opposed to the extrapolated ones the pandemic has thrown up, the one that causes me the most anxiety is this. Almost 10 million people have filed jobless claims in the U.S. in the last two weeks. It's a catastrophic event, akin to the stock market crash of 1929, which led to mass unemployment, although it took a couple of years for the ripple effect of the crash to create so many jobless. I'm still reasonably certain that the pandemic will be tamed. Testing will be done in sufficient numbers one day. A vaccine will be developed, but that's over the course of the coming months. But 10 million laid off in two weeks? What that means for the future? Again, it puts me in mind of September 11th. That day, back in my hotel after we came off the air, I was interviewed down a phone line by the BBC World Service. I said... 
This changes everything. I meant there would be a full-scale war in Afghanistan to wipe out al-Qaeda, but I also meant something vaguer, that the attack would change America. I had the same thought when I saw the headlines on Friday. When 10 million people lose their jobs in two weeks, this changes everything. Well, you can't fast-forward reality, so I won't speculate on how it will change America till I have more facts. There's just too much rumor and half-baked speculation out there. But it will change the country in ways we can't imagine. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. I know you've got time on your hands, so go to the website and comb through the archives. There are hours and hours of interesting stuff to listen to. It isn't all politics. There's some really good and interesting features. Music, too. And while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Be healthy. Thanks.